the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler show you what it takes to become a top 10% performer in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. My name is Dr. Riley Nadler. We have Dr. Kathy Greenberg on the line as a co-host for Leadership Development News. Between Kathy and I, we have helped thousands of leaders and executives perform in the top 10%. And today's show, we're going to talk about a new field called social cognitive neuroscience, and we're going to talk to Dr. Matt Lieberman. Um, Dr. Lieberman is an associate professor at UCLA in the psychology department, and he's also the co-director of the Social Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory. Dr. Lieberman has a Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard University and is the founder of this, one of the founders of this new field, we'll get more information about that, of social cognitive neuroscience. It's a mouthful, and we'll ask him exactly what that is. Uh, it's generated a lot of interest and also new findings in the brain, which has previously been in the black box of the brain. You know, for most of us, we don't know what's going on, uh, but we're going to shed some light into some of the dynamics of which parts of the brains are being activated in, in what areas that you as leaders are dealing with. He uses a functional magnetic resonance imaging, a fMRI, and we'll ask him to talk about exactly what that is, to look at some long-standing issues in social psychology, including certain models for self and social perception. Dr. Lieberman is the founding editor of a new journal, Social Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience, and he's working on a new book called Experience Shrugged, and we'll also ask him about that. We're going to focus on some of the brain research on how automatic and controlled processes interact in producing emotion, emotion regulation, self-knowledge, feelings of social exclusion, attributions, and other uh, about other individuals, the placebo effect, automatic behavior, and how we can use this information in leadership development. We won't get a chance to hit all that, but we're going to highlight some of those things. And as you know, Kathy and I want to bring you the best in current leadership topics, interviews with proven leaders, and we want to provide evidence-based best practices to help you develop more leaders in your organization. And let me welcome Kathy, the co-host for Leadership Development News. Hi, really. Thanks a lot. We're um, very excited today to hear uh, from Matt Lieberman. I am, in particular, because a lot of the early work that I did as a graduate student was on neuroscience and the brain. And we know that leaders are not only the heartbeat of an organization, but they are, in fact, the, if you will, kind of the brain of the organization in terms of how they think and how they act and behave. And most leaders tend to underestimate just how much influence they have over others. And as a result, sometimes they and their teams can, as you know, underperform. But doing a few things differently can dramatically and drastically improve your performance and your organizations. And in each and every one of these shows, we try to mix it up a little and give you not only uh, information about developing more and better leaders in your organization, but we talk about happy companies, emotional intelligence, 
generational and gender differences, workplace balance, and today we're going to talk about brain and significant neuroscience contributions to being a top performer. So I'm very excited to speak today with Matt and to learn a little bit more about what he's doing in the social cognitive area. And Matt, uh, we'd like you to just say hello. Welcome to the call. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, Matt's here. Thanks, Matt. And we're going to we have a list of questions that we want to uh, pick your brain on. But before we do that, we want to just um, talk a little bit about some of the evidence-based leadership. We know why we talk about leadership and leadership development news that leaders have 50 to 70 percent influence over the climate of their team. Emotions are contagious, and leaders are the emotional thermostat for the team. And when we talk about being a star performer, what we define that is as someone being in the top 10%. In some organizations, that's what they talk about, someone who exceeds expectations and someone in the top 10%. And as the leader moves up the corporate ladder, more and more of their competencies are in this realm of emotional intelligence when compared to IQ and technical expertise. And uh, if you get leaders into the top 10%, they're going to add twice as much revenue to the organization as managers in the 11th through the 89th percentile. And we know if we can, from this call, get a few things that you may be able to do differently for yourself or with your people, what we call micro-initiatives, that can create some macro-impacts. And if you're interested in more um, information from Dr. Kathy Greenberg, she can be reached at www.h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com for her happiness books, tools, speaking keynotes, leadership, and coaching services. And you can reach me, Dr. Relly Nadler, at www.truenorthleadership for emotional intelligence books, tools, speaking keynotes, uh, leadership, and coaching boot camps. And we're going to um, bring on Dr. Matt Lieberman. Let me just highlight a few things that I said earlier as far as the uh, intro. He has a Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard University. He's the, uh, one of the founders of a, of a field called social cognitive neuroscience. And he uses this interesting tool, the functional magnetic resonance imaging, to help look at key issues in social psychology and, and other key areas. And... Um, Matt, let's bring you to the call. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you come to work in this field of neuroscience? A little bit of background for our listeners. Um, it was a little bit circuitous. Uh, my background was actually originally in um, philosophy, psychology. I had a, a strong interest in, in science fiction. And, uh, and I think the thing that was always tying those together is I'm really interested in the way the mind works and how it allows us as human beings to interact with each other the way um, we do. And in some sense, the, the brain is sort of the greatest uh, uh, invention of science fiction we can imagine. It's, mm. it's really hard to sort of think about how you could have something do what the brain does. And um, well, go ahead, Kathy. What do you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm re I'm I am truly um, engaged in this conversation today because I'd like you to talk a little bit about Matt um, on the subject of social neuroscience. If you were to explain to a lay person who's, you know, not familiar with brain and behavioral science at all, how would you describe social neuroscience to them? Then can you talk, I mean, you have been such a founder in this field. You have the X system, the C systems. You've got a, a lot of different um, 
components, distinctions that have helped people to understand how the brain is regulated socially. So if you could talk about social neuroscience and some of the founding information they've created, um, I know that would help me out a lot. Sure. Um, so uh, social neuroscience uh, has kind of a short history and a long history. Um, I, you know, I feel a little chagrined when people say I was sort of one of the founders in this area because John Cassiopo was working in this area literally around the time of my birth. Um, so I, I clearly wasn't there uh, before him. I think what has gotten really exciting for a lot of folks is that for about the last 10 years, um, we've been able able to sort of peer inside the active uh, brain without using any forms of surgery or anything like that to see what's going on uh, in a regular person's brain while they're having some kind of experience that, that we provide for them or provoke in them uh, as, as researchers. And so social neuroscience conceptually starts from the perspective of if you want to understand people, if you want to understand their minds and their behavior and things like that, you've got to look at what their minds are built out of, and that's the brain. The brain is clearly the sort of the engine of our minds, of our behavior, and so on. But you also have to look at what are the sort of critical inputs to that engine, what makes it go, what makes it respond, and that's the social world that we live in. Most of our motivations at some level boil down to our reactions to other people, the way we want to be seen by other people, by other people. Um, and so those of us who are really interested in social neuroscience about 10 years ago said, you know, nobody really has put these two things together because it's been hard to do. But now it seems like with, with functional magnetic resonance imaging, we can start to do it in a way that, that might actually tell us something interesting. And so that's how sort of a handful of us got interested in this when we were in, in graduate school. And, uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of work. And that I think, you know, some of which has been pretty exciting and, and some of which, like anything in any other endeavor, you know, will, will be forgotten. But it seems like if you have an uh, opportunity to work with a group of people in a corporate environment, senior executives making decisions, that it would be so, um, I want to say, um, illuminating for them to have a conversation with you to understand what the difference is between how they process information under stress versus when they're relaxed versus when they're informed versus when they're not informed. So um, what, I, what I'd love for you to, to do is just share um, kind of what you might be able to share with a senior executive or a marketing executive or somebody who would use how information is processed to do something better. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, these conversations, when I've had them, and I, and I have had them um, with a couple of different folks in that situation, um, these folks, uh, it tends to require sort of a longer conversation to really get at what's going to work in their specific uh, sort of context and environment. But, but you're absolutely right that one of the the real advantages of this approach is um, that we can start doing what's called carving nature at its joints. So we have all sorts of personal theories and, and beliefs about how the mind is, is kind of divided up. You know, Freud uh, came on the scene a century ago and said, you know, you've got this sneaky unconscious that's going to keep you from thinking certain things but make you act in certain sort of odd ways at certain times. And we know for the most part that, that he wasn't right. But he was trying to explain the weird experience 
experiences that we have in everyday life. And, and one of the things that we've focused on in my lab is that there is this major division uh, between what we call the X system in the brain and the C system in the brain. Uh, the C system uh, refers to the parts of the brain that are involved in sort of reflective or effortful processing. So if you're rehearsing a phone number um, or trying to keep track of what you're going to say next in the conversation, the point you're going to make in a meeting, you're using um, the C system, and it has certain really great properties. It's super flexible, so you can think about, um, you know, the animals you saw at the zoo at, at one moment and the point you're going to make in this meeting in the next moment, um, but it has some big limitations. It can only do one thing at a time. So you can't think about the zoo and your next point at the same time. If you try to do both at the same time, they interfere with each other, and you'll end up blurting something about the zoo when you should be talking about something relevant <laughs> to the meeting. Yeah. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, we have this whole other system that we call the, uh, the X system, which is really uh, sort of involved in intuitive processing, um, sort of the uh, automatic associations we have. So if I say Romeo, everyone listening to this will immediately think Juliet, whether they want to or not. Um, and, and these systems we tend to share with a lot of other animals besides humans. Um, and, and these two systems, the X system and the C system, for the most part work together really well, but sometimes they're at cross purposes. Um, and, and that can create uh, lots of havoc in uh, the way we sort of present ourselves to others or, or sort of see others regulating or, or not regulating themselves in a particular environment. Uh, so go ahead, we've got about a minute. Matt, yeah, you can keep going. Um, so I was, I was, that was about where I was going to okay that right there. No worries. Well, just to, to kind of summarize that, uh, the X system is the X for reflexive, right? Right. And the C system is the C in reflective. So right. we'll talk more about that. This is Leadership Development News, and uh, we'll be right back after the break talking with Dr. Matt Lieberman. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a twig set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors. 
cried the second. I opened out the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Homeowners, real estate investors, bankers, listen up and tune in to Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight, the show that breaks it all down and gives it to you straight. Are you at risk of foreclosure? Interested in buying a foreclosed property? Mark Bull has the answers to the questions you might forget to ask. Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight broadcast live on the Voice America Business Channel, Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can't afford not to tune in. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. Today's guest is Dr. Matt Lieberman, and we're talking about social neuroscience and how the brain works, the executive brain and the social brain. Matt, you were just talking about the difference between um, kind of the the X brain and the C brain, one which is very process-focused and the other is more intuitive. Can you talk a little bit about... um, how a functional MRI works in in elucidating some of those uh, uh, pieces of the brain that you've been able to bring to bear? Sure. So what functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, does um, at a simple level is it lets us see which of the brain seem to be doing sort of more work at any particular point in time. Um, it, it turns out from uh, work from uh, doctors and scientists far smarter uh, than I am uh, that they discovered that uh, within the brain, blood tends to flow to the regions of the brain uh, that are more active at any particular moment in time. And there's a particular sort of signature of the blood that's sort of rushing to an area. It has different sort of oxygen properties. And it just so happens that the difference uh, of, for the, the oxygen in the uh, blood that's going to someplace new versus other regions of the brain is, uh, is a difference that has magnetic properties. So fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging, is a large five-ton machine that is able to pick up on those magnetic signals and sort of reconstruct where in the brain uh, changes are going on at a particular point in time. And just to clarify, when when a part is activated, is that is there more blood and more oxygen going there? Um, so it's not that it's so there is more blood going there. But uh-huh. What is relevant in terms of oxygen is whether or not uh, the proportion of sort of oxygenated to deoxygenated uh, blood, mm-hmm. and and it's that difference in the proportion that affects the magnetic property that the uh, FMC. So what's really I think interesting to our listeners is 
this is not just about looking at where your eyes are going or what direction your head is facing, which, of course, is what a lot of the police and FBI use Mm -hmm. in looking at this kind of cognitive intelligence. But you're saying that the brain, when it's looked at under this functional MRI, clearly indicates where functional thought is occurring. And by watching these patterns, you can start to actually see how a leader, an individual's brain, will function. So can you tell us a little bit about how... um, your research um, can tell what is going on in the brains of leaders and their followers. And, and I guess, you know, Relly, you've brought up the, the, the subject a couple of times yeah. of the amygdala hijack. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how, how one can manage this feeling of being totally overwhelmed and having your, your ability to think clearly um, absolutely kind of overwrought by all the things that are going through the brain that you just described. So let me just add on uh, to this just a second, and then Matt. And I think you know this amygdala hijack for people who don't know the term is really when you were uh, mostly you know sometimes out of control, and it sounds like it's the uh, reflexive part, the X part of the brain that's on automatic. Um, but I'm really curious, and we've asked people this question, Matt, before. A lot of the literature talks about reduced cognitive functioning, mm-hmm. and so maybe to, to to explain a little bit what happens, but I'd love to hear your perspective. How many IQ points does someone uh, actually lose in approximate matter? And I, I, I asked this to uh, Marco Iacoboni also, who we interviewed in the fall. It would just be interesting to see, you know, in a reduction of cognitive functioning, how much reduction is there? I know it's temporary. Right. Uh, so in terms of... Um IQ points, I, I don't think there's any estimate. I don't think anyone has ever done anything that would, would be a meaningful assessment of that. Um, assessing IQ points is something that actually takes, you know, a half hour, 40 right. minutes to assess. What we're looking at is what happens in a matter of, you know, a second or five seconds or right. ten seconds. But what we do know is is that your ability to sort of fluidly um, keep information in your mind at a particular point in time, so being able to rehearse, a, a you know, a ten digit number, a phone number with the area code, that's going to be diminished when, um, when you are sort of stressed out, which is, which is what it really comes down to. And, and we have, um, obviously, greater levels of uh, stress in our daily lives now than probably at any other point um, in history. We're, we're overloaded, and in America, we probably work more hours than just about any other industrialized nation. So there's a lot of stress, and, and it's very easy for that to convert into kind of dramatic emotional responses to something that under less stress might be less of of, uh, an emotional provocation. And when that happens, um, that can lead to um, uh, what Amy Arnston, who's at Yale, has referred to as the prefrontal cortex becoming frazzled. Hmm. Um, And and that means that those systems that allow us to sort of think clearly and reflectively and deliberatively um, tend to be a bit less efficient than they, they would be otherwise. Otherwise, um, and, uh, and and so that you know, I think is a probably relatively common phenomenon that we can all identify in our own experiences. Um, there are things that we can do to um, regulate those emotional. Uh, this is something that's been a pretty active area of research over the last 
six, seven years, uh, and, and this tends to be called emotion regulation. But when you're successful at emotion regulation, that's going to free up your various sort of cognitive or thinking capacities as well. So in some ways, emotion regulation is really um, thinking regulation, uh, clear thinking regulation uh, as well. And, and these strategies uh, vary. There's been a, done, a bunch of work done on what's called um, reappraisal. And reappraisal occurs where um, you might see something that's very disturbing to you and might get you sort of emotionally upset, but then you can sort of find some way to reinterpret what's happened in a way that isn't as distressing for you, and then that will tend to dampen down the uh, the amygdala, uh, sort of regulate this amygdala response. Mm-hmm by engaging in this particular kind of reflective processing. So if you are, you know, really upset about, um, you know, some news that you've gotten, so your uh, your superior has given you negative feedback, right. and think about ways that that might actually now allow you to perform better in the future uh, because, the, you know, they're now giving you feedback about what you need to focus on. That's going to change the underlying uh, uh, automatic emotional response, and in turn, that's then going to free up your mental capacity to mm. think more clearly and, and kind of work effectively going forward. So some of that, then going back to the brain, is the shift from, let's say, if you looked at the functional MRI, someone's emotional, the amygdala and some of those regions are going to be activated. But then when you do a reappraisal or, or put in another kind of cognitive direction, mm-hmm. that would access the prefrontal cortex? That's right. And that's there. kind of the, the shift between what I refer to as the X system and, and the C system. The C system is that system that we use to think in words and language and flexibly, and that's going to be more engaged, and to the extent that it is, we tend to see reduced activity in regions of the brain like the amygdala and other regions involved in emotional processing as well. What's so fascinating about this is the uh, kind of the validation of what uh, psychologists, and uh, you know, I had I am a psychologist and have been in private practice, and, and just the idea of naming the emotion and you know talking about what do you feel and and how is that, and so now we know from what you're saying that's allowing them to probably feel less and to maybe to redirect it and to bring in a little bit more of the executive functioning. That's right, and and that may not be obvious when you're interacting with right. someone who's talking about their feelings. So when someone starts telling you about how distressed they are, you know, you might want them to stop because you don't want to hear that, you don't want to know that they're distressed, but it turns out that that may be a really good way for them to very quickly become less distressed. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a surprising thing. You might not guess it, but it turns out that that's the way our brains are wired, that simply saying that you feel bad can do some of the work, not all of the work, uh-huh. some of the work um, to helping you feel better and helping to manage the emotional response that was causing you to feel bad. What a lot of psychologists will tell you is if you um, are told not to think something, mm-hmm. That's the worst thing you can tell somebody. You know, when someone's upset yep. and you say, don't think about it, or let's talk about something else, all that does is create that looping that you're describing that's going on that's causing the feeling to overwhelm you versus what you just described we should be doing right. so that we can gain back our consciousness, if you will, our cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so you're, you're referring to what we call the white bear effect. So ah. class uh, all the time, and we'll tell a, a room of 300 people for the next minute, don't think about a white bear. 
And, uh, you know, people can't help it. That's all they can think about. Right. And even if they can suppress it for 15, 20 seconds, your mind goes to sort of check and see if you're now thinking about a white bear, and there you go, you're thinking about yeah. a white bear. And could you imagine doing that to thousands of employees when you tell them, don't think about the fact that we're closing that plant. Yeah. Don't right. think about the fact that your paycheck is going to get cut or that your health insurance won't be here in a year. You know what I mean? It, 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 it really works. creates a lot of stress. On the other side of the equation, since I'm the right. happy person. Um, when we are working and, and talking to individuals, um, as we might call persuading them to think about things we'd like them uh, to, to engage in so that they're not in a position where they are uh, being put at risk, you know, this is actually a good situation. How, how is it that persuasion works? Um, what's happening in the brain when things are working well? Well, we've been doing a number of studies uh, in the last year looking at what goes on in the brain when, when people sort of hear something that's intended to persuade them, and they say, yeah, I was persuaded by that. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I think the, the intuition that most people would have is that what's critical is that you're engaging those sort of working memory regions that allow you to think clearly about the argument, and then you decide that the argument uh, is accurate. Well, it turns out, so far, we haven't seen that in the brain whatsoever. What we see in the brain is very interesting, though. What it looks like in study after study is that when people were persuaded by an argument that someone made, it looked like they were doing perspective-taking. It looked like they were thinking about somebody else's point of view. Mm. And uh, to the extent that that seems to be going on in the brain, people afterwards say, yeah, I found that persuasive. So it's not just about pushing the right set of facts and hoping the other person is rational enough to sort of see clearly that that's the truth. A lot of it seems to be about getting people to think about uh, your perspective, and if they're willing to consider that, it seems that the brain will do a lot of the other work for you. So what, what part of the brain is the perspective-taking part of the brain? Well, there's a, there's a collection of regions that seem to work together. One is sort of right on top and in the middle of the front part of your brain. So if you went up from your nose mm -hmm. just above sort of your hairline, mm -hmm. that's a region called dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. It's about oh, yeah. mm -hmm. that okay. region is a region that we see again and again when people are thinking about the thoughts and beliefs and perspectives of other people. And there's a couple other regions, but okay. that's really the key one. Well, well, that yeah, <laughs> we're going to be right back. Obviously, we're very animated about this subject, and certainly it is very intriguing for our listeners. We'll be right back to talk to Dr. Matt Lieberman about his new book, Ex Experience Shrugged. This is Leadership Development News. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066.
Before every word, there is a thought. Before every action, there is a thought. If everything starts with a leader, what happens when leaders around the world start to think and do things differently? I'm thinking the world will change. Evolve the leader. Evolve the company. Change the world. Join Susan Kavanaugh for Summit Speed. All leaders rise. Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Adding fractions is nothing. For real? Look, these are denominators. You multiply this one so that it's the same as that, then you add them up. Man, that's easy. Charles Bennett dreamed of returning to the old neighborhood as a teacher, but without money for college, only half of his dream came true. He's back in the old neighborhood. Well, enough math. I got to deliver these sandwiches. Please support the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A message from the UNCF and the Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with Dr. Matt Lieberman about social cognitive, uh, social cognitive neuroscience. That's what you're calling it, or cognitive social neuroscience? It's social cognitive neuroscience or just social neuroscience. Okay. And so before the break, we were talking about when someone's taking a perspective taking, you were saying it's in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that can, can see someone's perspective. It's one of the regions that we see again and again when someone is thinking about how someone else is understanding something, the thoughts they might be having, their perspective, that sort of thing. There's other regions as well that are also pretty commonly seen along with it, but that's the region that's really been focused on the most. But we see all of the regions associated with perspective taking when people say, I feel more persuaded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's good. So, and I think when, what that says to some of our listeners is, you know, asking provocative questions. What would you do in this situation? How would you experience this? I mean, those questions that would activate part of that thought process. Um, yeah, I mean, you want to get them sort of to to be open to your perspective. Right. I think it's the critical thing. So it's you know, if you can say, look. You know, I'm not trying to persuade you. I just want you to sort of hear this and, and understand this perspective. And, and if you're sort of willing to do that, then we'll sort of trade roles and I'll, you know, do the other. But once you've got them on the hook, considering yeah. your perspective, you, your work may be done. Okay. So it's almost kind of laying out your thinking and, and letting them to really track that to see how you got from point A to point B and, and that. Yeah, and it's just it's getting them to really give a different kind of ear to what you're saying. It's less about the facts of what you're saying, right. or it's not just about the facts. Right. It's about whether or not they're listening to you as someone who's kind of on their team that they would give a full hearing to, someone that they've already prejudged as they're trying to persuade me. As I see. Okay. Uh, the other question that I wanted to ask, and, and this is a lot of leaders, um, especially when we talk about emotional intelligence, you know, they have people come in and, and, and they can easily uh, think that someone's complaining, they're, they're kind of whining. 
Um, and sometimes we we say to, to a follower saying it's coming to a leader, um, can you just let me vent for a while? I, I just need to vent, which somehow frames the listener. But is there, you know, have you noticed, is there a kind of time frame? I mean, how long does someone need to vent before they, as I would say, that name it to tame it, which you say go from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, right? Is there a time frame? That you know that someone needs to make that shift. Is it, I imagine everybody's a little different, but it, any thoughts on that? Well, there's. I mean, there's really variable uh, answers to that. I mean, we have people simply looking at uh, emotionally provocative scenes, and then a second later, or at the same time, sort of choosing words to to label those scenes. Hmm. That produces the effect. But there's also work where um, someone will come in and be asked to write about dramatic that's happened to them for 20 minutes on. Four Four days, and just from those 20 minutes on four days, you'll see changes in their physical and mental health six months later. So, the so in terms of the time, I would say the most interesting things is how long some of these effects can sort of produce yeah. benefits, rather than how much time you have to sort of switch in. Okay. Mode. And so I missed a little bit what you said. What are they doing for 20 minutes? And they'll, they'll come in and they'll simply be told that we'd like you to write about some sort oh. of recent negative experience or some particular trauma that the person has gone through. And they just write whatever they want about that for 20 minutes on four successive days. And then the scientists will track them for months, six months, even even longer, and find out you know how many times they've had uh, issues where they needed to go to the doctor or what their mental health is over that time. And, and reliably they see benefits over that time just as a function of those four little writing sessions. That is huge. Yeah. So the idea of people journaling, kind of keeping notes on things, and, and so in a way it's it's kind of that almost perspective taking. They get it out on paper, they put it in front of them, and then they probably somehow make a difference. Right. They're more detached from it, I think, uh-huh. that happens. And part of what we're doing now is we're putting together these two types of ways of looking at it. So what we're doing is we're looking at people's brains before they do those four days of writing, mm-hmm. and, and then what we're going to try to do is predict you know, which kinds of brains, which kinds of people have the kind of brain that allow them to benefit most from going through that procedure. Wow, that is that is such uh, great information. Um, well, we're going to keep moving on here. And on the other side of, we're talking about persuasion, and I know you've done some research on this that I thought is also fascinating. Many leaders um, or maybe people in organizations may feel criticized by their boss, you know, some of that social hurt, social pain. I know you've done some, some research about that. So what's happening when someone's feeling criticized, you know, by somebody? Well, we think this is really fascinating, what we found here, and it's the kind of thing that I just don't think you could have found out without looking at the brain. So we put people uh, in the fMRI scanner, and we have them play a little um, what they think is a ball-tossing game over the Internet with some other people who they also believe are in fMRI scanners at the same time. And we have the game rigged so that partway through the game, they stop getting the ball thrown to them. Complete strangers just stop throwing you the ball, and you never get the ball again. So this is kind of a form of social rejection. Uh Um, And what we see in the brain when this happens is that the brain, during this episode of social pain, looks just like it looks during episodes of physical pain. so this is something that is, you know, really quite striking, that when people are feeling rejected, they may actually be feeling something very similar to actual
actual physical pain. Um, when people are uh, hurt emotionally, we tend to think that they should just get over it, pull right. up by their bootstraps. But if someone had a broken leg, you would never give them that same advice. Mm. It takes the time it takes to heal. And, um, and so we see this um, kind of response that looks just like physical pain, but some of our subjects show this increased activity in what we call the C system, in this right prefrontal cortex area, um, that seems to be able to help regulate that pain response. That same area is the area that's involved in putting your feelings into words. So it seems that the venting about bad feeling can help regulate those sort of emotional pain responses that, that we see. So what I, when I first read some of your work on that, what, what's so fascinating, I mean, first is just the finding of physical pain and social pain residing in the same spot. But depending on the physical pain, many times, you know, you, you fall, you uh, get your knee scratched up, and then it's over. The physical pain is over. That's right. In the organizational world and social relationships where you're studying, we repeat that social pain then over and over and over when people hold on to that. That's right, and then that's another finding actually that, that we didn't do, but, but some of our uh, friends at Purdue University looked at. They looked at, um, you know, we, we now know that uh, the experience of social and physical pain are, are similar in certain ways, but the memory of them is quite different. So the memory for physical pain, that usually doesn't bother us that much, but the memory for social pain uh. and living that can be almost as distressing as the original experience wow. had with it. So it is a much more powerful uh, memory to carry with with us than, than physical pain usually is. So what's, what's fascinating about that is not only with the social pain, and I'm thinking about people that I deal with in coaching and leaders, the rejection they feel, they keep re-injuring themselves. That's right. And then, and then the memory of that re-injury lasts, lasts longer than any kind of physical pain. And the fear of uh, re-injuring yourself in that social way yeah. may radically alter the way uh, people behave when they have an opportunity to sort of move forward and, and not sort of get rejected the next time. They may sort of create self-fulfilling prophecies where the fear of rejection may actually increase the likelihood wow. of rejection. So this is quite uh, fascinating information. I'm, I'm working with a few different leaders who typically, like you, you know, they always have their boss that they have some issues with. And it's typically the same issue. So almost day in and day out, they are re-injuring themselves, one, from the interaction with their, po with their boss, but then, two, they are repeating it and they're working it and they're, and they're in a sense, continuing that, that social pain. That's right. That, that certainly can be one of the things that can happen. Wow. Um, but if we engage that same stuff in a sort of more uh, sort of detached, abstract, verbal kind of way, right. sometimes we can help work through it and, and really put yep. the rest in a better way. Okay. So uh, another question here. You know, I've worked with a lot of different folks, and, they, and a lot of times they have this mindset uh, that – People can't change, and especially, you know, in my world, dealing with coaching and the same thing with Kathy, with individuals, a lot of times you hear from someone, well, that's just the way they are. They're not going to change, and, you know, certain people have their own theories that once someone's in their 30s that they're not going to be able to change the brain, it's hardwired. So what have you found about maybe some of the hardwiring of the brain, and are there some ways that you can make a change? We make changes to our brains constantly, constantly. If you didn't know that the value of pi was 3.14 and someone comes along and tells you that, if you remember that a day later, your brain has changed. 
Mm. Every time you learn new information, your brain has changed. Now, what I think those folks are typically referring to are sort of the habits of the brain, Mm -hmm. the way we habitually respond to different situations. And those are really hard to change. Um, I think a lot of people know when they, uh, for instance, uh, go home and visit their parents, um, sometimes they'll feel like they're reverting to the way they were as children. And that's... Feel something really important, which is um, that our environments tend to drive our, the way our brain works. Okay. And so if you can create a new environment yeah. for yourself, a new routine, and stick to it for a while, that will then become a new habit, and your brain will change accordingly. But change the situation, change the environment, your brain will follow. So as we kind of bring this to a close here, um, having some of those conversations with people, developing a support group, um, getting more knowledge for people are all different ways that they can uh, change the brain. Yeah, I think absolutely. Okay. And so we're going to wind down here. We didn't get a chance to talk about your your, your new book, um, but I think what we'll, we'll do is have you maybe back at some time. And if people want to hear more about some of your work, what's, what's your website or a way to get a hold of you? Uh, my website is at www.scn, which is SCN for Social Cognitive Neuroscience. So www.scn.ucla.edu, or they can just look up Matthew Lieberman on Google, and, and I think I'm the first person who comes up. We'll talk more about that. This is Leadership Development News, and uh, we'll be right back after the break talking with Dr. Matt Lieberman. Bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Dad, let's sing that bedtime song. Rockabye baby by Newton's treetop. His first law of motion, make sure you won't stop. The same rules of physics apply to a ball. While gravity is a force that makes things fall. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in math and science. But it's never too early to set your daughter's future in motion. For some simple ideas, go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. 
The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. And we do have one more segment that we're talking with Dr. Matthew Lieberman here. So he just gave us his website. And so we're fortunate to get a little bit more time talking about uh, one of the questions is around self-knowledge, self-reflection. Where does that uh, reside in the brain? And then just to kind of bring this in, um, many times people get this 360 feedback where they get assessments that other people write on them in the business world. And I've often seen that people's self-reflection what they think about themselves is way off. And I'm just wondering, when they overestimate themselves, uh, is, is there any way to get a better accurate reflection? So maybe the first part is just about the self-knowledge, self-reflection. Where does that reside? Sure. Um, there's pretty consistent evidence now that there's um, two regions uh, in the brain that seem to be active when you uh, think about yourself, whether or not you think about your 16th birthday or think about uh, what you like to eat when you go out for dinner or when you think about what kind of human being you are and, and how you think you should treat others. Uh, these two regions are both kind of on the midline of the brain. Um, so one is kind of right behind uh, your your nose, and the other one is kind of in the back of the brain, but also sort of in the middle between your, between your eyes. Hmm. Um, so these are both called medial prefrontal regions, uh, sorry, medial prefrontal and, and uh, medial posterior regions. Uh, they show up again and again, and uh, these are regions, particularly the prefrontal one, that seem to be pretty unique to uh, humans relative to uh, a lot of other animals. So it kind of makes sense that our self-knowledge is uh, kind of a unique feature of, of humanity that, that we don't share with a lot of other animals. And the region responsible for it is pretty unique to you. Is this medial prefrontal? Yeah. And, and so and I imagine, you know, to the second part of this question about when people overestimate themselves, that is, is there degrees about how... Uh, aware people are, and and you know, have you have you noticed when you're looking at that, is that are parts of the brain more developed if someone who is more aware of themselves than others? I suspect not. I suspect that this region isn't really responsible for us having accurate knowledge of ourselves. Mm but rather really developed knowledge of ourselves. So I might have really elaborate theories about how I'm the greatest genius of all time or I'm the greatest pole vaulter of all time or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that corresponds with reality. And I think that actually the more developed this region is, the more you might be resistant to taking an outside perspective on yourself. And I think that's one of the keys to to greater self-accuracy as far as society is concerned is is not so much knowing yourself better from the inside. Right yourself better from the outside and how others see you right. and, and acting according to that. It turns out that um, the way we make sense of ourselves from the outside, so if we see our body in motion or we see ourselves in the mirror and, and look at ourselves in an external way, uh-huh. really different regions of the brain are involved compared to when we sort of reflect inwardly. Oh, wow. It's really fascinating that those are, are 
profoundly separated. Uh, it, it actually tends to explain why we think we're sort of separated into mind and body. Because when we focus on our bodies, you don't get the same regions as when we focus huh. on minds. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you look at yourself in a mirror, a different part of the brain shows up in the functional MRI than when you're thinking about aspects of yourself. Absolutely. Huh. Very interesting. And then the other part that you said around developed knowledge versus accurate knowledge. And so that's where I think in, in this world of 360 feedback and trying to make the bridge from what their developed knowledge is and then hearing from others oh. about, well, I don't think you're as good at, at an influence as you thought or in right. self-management as you thought. Yeah, I mean, I think there, and I think this is a general sort of law of, of social interaction. Um, if you can get them to think about how they would appear to other people. For instance, if there's another person in the organization who kind of has the same issues that they have right. in terms of the performance feedback, ask the person that you're interacting with to, to judge that person. And trust me, they're going to come up with all the problems because the problems are always obvious to everyone but the individual. Yes, yeah. And say, well, you know, that's kind of how people see you. Uh, the way you see that person, and we all see that person, is the same way that everyone is kind of looking at you and how you're doing things right now so you can understand why we might have certain issues that we want you to work on. And I think that might be a way to sort of, uh, sort of work in a, a more roundabout way to getting them to understand the feedback that they need to incorporate. Uh -huh. Okay, so see something in, in somebody else that may be similar, and then they can kind of step out. It's almost like looking at that person like in the mirror. It may back bring it different part of the brain. Well, you can kind of trick them because they don't know that you're bringing it back to them when you start that yeah, yeah. conversation. Huh, okay. Well, all right, so, so um, let me ask you about your book, and I don't know how far you are in this, but Experience Shrugged. Yeah. And maybe talk a little bit about that, you know, that, how it came about, what it's about, maybe the intended audience. Well, I mean, I think some of the themes that we've been talking about here are um, elements of it. It's a little bit about sort of the struggle between kind of our more rational versus our more uh, intuitive, emotional sides of ourselves and how those things tend to play out um, at the societal level, uh, at the sort of level of kind of science and philosophers and also within us as individuals. And all of this comes back to the fact that the brain has this big split in it in these more sort of uh, intuitive emotional processes and these more reflective processes. And one of the key things is, is that when someone ever asks you to justify why you're doing something, mm. you have to use the C system, the reflective system. Mm -hmm. So you can't ever justify your intuitions in words. And if you are, you're just sort of making stuff up. It doesn't mean the intuitions are wrong. It just means that we don't value them as much because we can't convey their basis to other people. Uh, we just don't have words for those things, mm. even though, you know, clearly Michael Jordan's intuitions about what to do in a specific situation right. are fabulous. You can't really put those into words. And so that's because it's, it's basically a different part of the brain. It's kind of that reflexive part of the brain. That's not verbal. That's not verbal. It's acting. It's, and it's, it's really hard to pair apart what were, what were all the cues is a little bit of everything all at once. Right, and one of the consequences of this is that I think as a society and as individuals, we tend to overvalue the rational, the verbal, um, the abstract, and I think that to the extent that we're doing this, we may be, to some extent, shutting down some of those more uh, sort of intuitive, emotional parts of ourselves uh, that are really important for feeling fulfilled, but we don't realize that by trying to be rational and do things that help us get ahead, we're sort of dampening down some of those processes mm -hmm. in a way that isn't so desirable. So um, 
is there a way that you, we can speak about some of that? I mean, it, you know, some people who their intuition is more developed, can they can they make that bridge and give some words to it, or it still stays somewhat cloudy? Yep. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I don't I don't think we have um, clear answers to that. I know that we know examples of people with fabulous intuition mm-hmm. when we see them. We know uh, musicians and politicians and right. athletes who have this wonderful intuition, and we we know it when we see it. But those tend to be exceptions to the rule. And other than that, we want people to tell us exactly why this stock is going to go up or right, right, and work out. And that's not always the reality of, of what's actually going to bring yeah. good results. And it's, uh, in the book Blink, there's some great examples of, of exactly what you're talking about between the, probably the reflexive uh, yep. and the uh, more, um, you're talking about reflective, and the other side is the reflex or reflexive, the X system. Yeah, the X system, okay. Yep. All right, well, great. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. This has been enlightening. We could talk uh, a lot more, but I think for our listeners, this is a good start, and then you've already given some of the feedback about how they can follow up on some of your work. Great. Thanks a lot for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks again, and this has been Leadership Development News, signing off. Okay, great. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you're leaving us today with some great ideas and inspiration from today's top leaders. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. 